fundraising announcement. As you may or may not know, edX Global is a completely nonprofit organization that is run by volunteers. 100% of our donations go to student-led projects around the world, and it would help us tremendously if you donated even as little as $5. Please send us a donation through PayPal or Venmo to edxglobalinc at gmail.com, spelled E-D-A-C-T-S-G-L-O-B-A-L inc at gmail.com. You can be provided with a tax-exempt ID number after your donation by requesting through the same email address. Thank you for your donation. You are listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today our guest is Stephanie Chalk. Dr. Stephanie Chalk is a mental health counselor, adjunct professor, and psychology technical writer. Stephanie specializes in trauma, disability, and multiculturalism. She recently completed her dissertation on the connections between individualism and collectivism, post-traumatic growth, and coping during the COVID-19 pandemic. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you get us started and tell us a little bit about what uh, drew you to becoming a counselor and why? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, so prior to entering the counseling profession, I had a career in what's called applied behavior analysis or ABA therapy. Um, and ABA therapy is um, a form of therapy that's just focused on modifying behavior for um, usually with children um, on the, with autism or other disabilities. Um, so the issue with this therapy is it focuses only on behavior, not so much about what's going on on a deeper level with a client. Um, and I was finding myself curious about what's going on for a client um, emotionally, what's going on in their minds. And so I, um, I left ABA therapy and I went and studied counseling. So I got my master's in clinical mental health counseling from George Washington University, which is in uh, Washington, DC. And then I got a PhD from James Madison University, which is in the Shenandoah Valley of um, Virginia. Um, well, first of all, I, I understand you just got your PhD, correct? So congratulations. Yeah, congrats. That's a lot that of work. So exciting. Um, so was there was there anything from your from your youth or your or your undergraduate years that kind of drew you to working with children with autism? Yeah, so um, I um, actually have um, an uncle with um, an intellectual disability who is on the autism spectrum. Um, also, I have other family members who are on the autism spectrum as well. Um, my sister um, was diagnosed with Asperger's um, when she was um, a teenager. Um, and for those who are not familiar with Asperger's, um, Asperger's is now, now it's all lumped into autism um, and the autism spectrum. Um, but um, that's basically, um, she was diagnosed with that form of um, autism. So it's, autism is something that's been, um, a very strong part of my life, um, just growing up. Um, and yeah, I just always really enjoyed, um, 
working with people who are who are different. Um, I just have always had just um, just enjoyed it, enjoyed um, people's company who were a little bit different from myself. So that's what really drew me to working with um, individuals on the autism spectrum. Yeah, a lot of people are drawn to their practice for the why, right? And so having people in your life that have those needs certainly um, make you feel like you have that bigger purpose. With uh, COVID happening right now, depression and anxiety and all of these things are on the rise. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing with people regarding mental health during COVID right now? Absolutely. So um, COVID-19 has exacerbated mental health concerns that were already present. Um, It is also triggering new um, conditions. So people who have never been depressed a day in their life are now experiencing depression. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of isolation, Um, even um, existential concerns like um, wonderment about the future, a feeling of a lack of, you know, lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. Um, Just, uh, yeah, focusing on every day being the same and just having no certainty of when things will resemble some sort of uh, normal life. So... Um, I also have clients who are engaging in activities they never engaged in before, like um, harmful activities, um, Mm -hmm. um, drug use when never using drugs prior, um, Hmm. unlawful behaviors. um, So like compulsive stealing and things like that um, have emerged. So, yeah, it's definitely taking a toll on people. You know, and that's that's been one of the things that at least – many of us in in the field of education we've we've been talking about bloom's taxonomy for years and years and years while at the same time we've been talking about maslow's hierarchy of needs that there's that social emotional part that really needs 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 to be part of it but it seems like at least in the field of education and i'm talking k-16 um many people were more concerned about the about blooms and not really thinking about mass about you know mad mass maslows i'm thinking one of the good things if there's anything good that's coming out of this out of this pandemic is finally people are looking at children's social emotional um, not just children's social emotional but all of our social emotional um can you can you talk about that? Can you, you know, also kind of like look or talk about what what you've been seeing if if you have been seeing anything nationally or internationally about the social emotional aspects of people during this time? Yeah, well, and here's the thing. It's interesting you mentioned Maslow's hierarchy because we look at the bottom of the hierarchy. There's basic needs, you know, food, shelter, sense of safety. We go to the top of the hierarchy, that's that self-actualization, those, um, I guess, more personally fulfilling levels of the hierarchy that involve, um, definitely involve the lower levels before you can get up to the higher levels. So right now, people are in this survival mode, um, and it's really hard to climb up that ladder of the hierarchy of needs when you are in that survival mode. You need to have your basic needs met. And right now, a lot of basic needs are not being met for people. So that has a huge impact on 
their social, their emotional well-being and their social well-being and, and everything just because those basic needs are not yet met. So it gets really hard to climb up that ladder and, um, and grow and become um, self-actualized um, when those basic needs are not met. Yeah, it seems like the socio-emotional learning or needs are focused a lot by educators when they teach in maybe like, you know, Title I schools, things like that. But now we're realizing that it's it's basic and it's essential to all people (laughs) and all children. And, um, you know, things like safety, you know, if children come from unsafe homes or things like food, if they come from poverty-stricken homes, they're not getting those things because sometimes their meals, you know, only came from school. Or, you know, if students went to before and after school programs, they had breakfast served or, you know, you know, um, snacks and things like that. So a lot of those basic needs aren't being met. So, And then also not to mention the secondary effects of, you know, just how different education looks now online. Uh, So as an adjunct, um, are you witnessing any mental health issues with students that you're teaching or any colleagues? And I know that, you know, confidentiality and things like that, but maybe in broad terms, you could talk about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So it is definitely having an impact on students, uh, a profound one of that, Um, especially my undergraduate students who are at a a more vulnerable age than graduate students who are a little bit older. Um, So I've had several, and here's just some examples, I've had several students um, drop out of class completely due to mental health concerns. Um, Yeah. Um, Many students are asking me to excuse assignments due to stress and other mental health concerns, which is not something I saw very often Mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic. Um, I'm seeing some students, they're just not, they're not turning in assignments. Um, They aren't attending class. When I reach out, they're not responding to emails. It's almost like they're just shutting down. Um, And again, this is not something I saw very often um, prior to the pandemic. So it's having a huge impact on them. Um, it's affecting affecting them academically. Obviously, if you know you're not able to turn in assignments, it's also affecting them just in general. They're just general life stress. Um, college can be a stressful time, and having to focus on your studies that's that's a lot of stress in itself often. And so, you add that to stress, um, all the other stressors surrounded by COVID-19, and it, it's having a huge impact. Yeah, I know at, um, at Cal State Fullerton, they offer free, you know, counseling sessions for students, and many of my students use them for the first time, you know, in this past year because of the pandemic and because of the extra added stress and anxiety. But I also know that, you know, I've been on leave now for about a year from the university, but um Many of my former students have reached out to me and said, I feel a lot of stress and anxiety and insecurity about the future, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know who to turn to, and so I'm writing you. And, you know, to which I said, use this, you know, the school counseling resources, um, meditation, which has been my new uh, New Year's resolution this year, was the Calm app for meditation. And I just said, you know, you have to try to ask for help. And I realize that I might be your first step, but, you know, um, you know, and these are master students, which you, you know, you expect 
them to have a little bit more grasp on, you know, stress management and, you know, they've taken on this, you know, big program. But as it turns out, we all are, you know, going through this thing together and it looks a little bit different in everyone. But um, I think, you know, certainly the pandemic has caused a lot of more um, of these things to surface. Yes, absolutely. Across the age span too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, teens are having a rough time. Emerging adults, like adults under the age of 25 are having a hard time, but everyone is really like some ages might be more vulnerable than others, but Mm -hmm. everyone is, you know, across backgrounds and ages are are experiencing struggles with this. And so what, what type of recommendations if you're, if you're able to give any, uh, because I, 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 I do, I do understand your, and, and respect your, your position, but, um, a lot of our listeners are, are K-12 teachers that are going through this with their own, with their own students. Is there, is there any recommendations that, that you could actually give our, our listeners who are working with, with K-12 kids? Yeah, sure. Um, And first, I want to say, I know that there's a lot of struggles going on with um, teaching uh, online learning. It's really challenging for teachers to, um, you know, help students stay engaged when they're staring at a screen all day. It's really it's it's really a challenge. So um, I think the best um, thing that I can recommend is just kind of um, being aware of some of those signs of burnout, being aware of your own needs, um, just kind of checking in with yourself and saying, okay, what am I feeling right now and what do I need? Um, connecting with others um, socially, even if you can't meet in person, you can still connect virtually. Um, just maintaining those social connections uh, is really important at this time just because there is so much isolation. Um, we think about, you know, maybe teachers prior to this would be able to, you know, hang out with their teacher, you know, their fellow colleagues in the teacher's lounge and talk and chat and kind of maybe decompress at the end of the day or in the middle of the day. And that's becoming a lot harder now. There's, you know, not as a space to decompress so much. So just trying to find and create and and adapt a new space to decompress is really important. Yeah. I like that. It's, thinking about the things that you need and then looking at them, how you can meet your own needs uh, in a different way. And that's, yeah. it's easier for adults, right? But what about, what about um, help with like teachers reaching out to their students? What kind of suggestions would you have for um, teachers to help students who they might see these issues arising in? Yeah, I think um, so. There's some some very basic things you can do um, as a teacher or any other professional um, when someone's reaching out to you. So just when you have a student that's um, reaching out to you for help, just listening, understanding, and validating. So listening to that student's uh, story and concerns, um, trying to understand what they're feeling, and then validating the feeling. Um, I think that's really important. So much of the time people reach out to us not necessarily for advice, but just to be heard and to be understood and validated. So I think that's something that um, teachers can definitely do is just listen, understand, and validate. Um, And also having resources available 
for, um, you know, counseling centers or, you know, whatever else, any other mental health resources or wellness resources, um, just kind of having those on hand, something that can be really beneficial. I like that. I like that you've not like oversimplified it, but listening, understanding, validating. And I think that's a really important skill set to teach people at all ages. And kindergartners are not too young for that. And that's just a really good example of empathy and teaching that emotional intelligence. Um, And it can, like it can be done at all ages and it, all people need those things. So I really like that. Yeah, it, and, and 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 you bring up you bring up a wonderful point, Stephanie. That that a lot of teacher educators have been talking about for many many years. Um, I know that for myself, one of the things that I've that I've always wanted to be part of teacher education are three different courses. One is a one is an acting class just for the simple reason that we're up there, we're animated, we need to be animated, we need to be doing all this stuff. The other one is a um, is an interpersonal communications class where you're taught to listen, um, you know, because there's, because we, we put our undergrads through a public speaking class, but we're not teaching them to listen. But that third one is that, you know, some of the, you know, kind of like what, what you were, you were saying, empathy, um, and just, you know, be, you know, because even though, uh, um, you know, even though a 10th grade student, they break up with their, with their, with their boyfriend and they go to their teacher and they're crying or they're upset about it. And the teacher's like, you'll get over it. You know, but no, it's real. It's, it's, it's something that's very real. And, um, maybe, maybe one of the good things that'll, that'll come out of this is that teacher education will change, uh, where we, and, and hopefully a lot of positions will, will take notice that empathy is, is, is one of those skills that, um, it's difficult to teach, but by, but by providing information, maybe, maybe we as professionals can learn something more. Absolutely, yes. And um, there's there's so many um, specific techniques you can you can teach to um, convey empathy. Like you said, it's hard to teach empathy. Maybe we have it, but we don't know how to show it or express it. There are things that we can learn to do to um, express that we have empathy and and better support um, students and each other. Yeah. Yeah. So then what are some of, now we're going to ask you to put your, um, put your crystal ball into motion. What predictions for 2021 um, do you see in the, as a, as a mental health counselor and within the mental health profession? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I'll just start by saying as a whole, um, I do have high hopes for 2021. I think with vaccinations, things will start to get a little bit better. Um, however, I believe we're going to be dealing with some continued trauma for, um, for quite a while. Um, I believe that we're going to see a lot of difficulty adjusting to um, what will either become the post-pandemic world or what many scientists are predicting, the COVID-19 endemic world. Mm. So I think we're going to just 
see a lot of those um, just trauma-related concerns, um, difficulty adjusting, um, fear, um, just hypervigilance, um, just um, maybe some, maybe sometimes uh, I think we're going to see some agoraphobia, perhaps, um, which is that fear of leaving the house. Um, because people have been inside for so long and that change, that adjusting is going to be really challenging for some people. So um, I think that we're going to see a little bit of that, um, which is something that we probably don't think about as much um, with the pandemic, but I do think we're going to see some fear of leaving the house. Um, newly developed social anxiety that was not there before because we're not used to interacting with people as much. So um, just mental health concerns that may not be as obvious. There's some obvious ones like the anxiety and the stress, um, the fatigue of dealing with it all, but also these, um, these new fears and these new um, types of anxiety that um, were not present before in people. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. And I, I listened to a different podcast recently, too, where the host was talking about um, her social anxiety. And she said, typically, I'm very outgoing and I'm very much a people person. But when given the opportunity to meet up with people, I immediately was like, no, I don't I don't think so. And just I wondered, like, what would I talk about? And, you know, had all of these onsets of anxiety when it was never really even thought about before. So it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm kind of like that now because one of my greatest pleasures in, in life was to have people come over with barbecue, you know, we'll have a good time. Now I'm like, do I really need to go to the market? You know, and then when I'm, when I'm there, I'm looking at everyone thinking, okay, where have they been? And how are they going to affect me? And it's 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 something that it's something I never thought about, but the fear of leaving home, um, and that's a that's a really good point. Um, and so and so coming on that, um, how can we adjust? How can we and educators? How can like educators help? Because they're going to be going through this too. Uh, so what are some, <laughs> now's, now's our counseling session, Stephanie, <laughs> how can we adjust? Yeah. And that, and that's such a, that's a hard question to answer because there's so many factors to consider. Yeah. Um, every person is different, you know, every person's right. needs are a little bit different, but, um, one thing that I think, um, can apply to everyone is, um, Deliberately reflecting on, you know, how do we want to grow from this? Um, what have we learned? And deciding what we want to do moving forward. So that is some, um, the power of choice is really powerful here. Um, we can choose to um, grow. We can choose to um, learn and we can choose to move forward. Um, we can choose how we um, how we want to um, continue as a person moving forward. Um, and this is where post-traumatic growth comes in. Um, so my dissertation involved post-traumatic growth um, in relation to COVID-19. Um, and post-traumatic growth is, um, that, that is the 
positive developments that um, occur following or during a crisis or a trauma. And these positive developments are um, they're emotional um, or, or mental um, developments that include things like um, an increased sense of gratitude, um, a newfound um, purpose or passion or sense of meaning, um, uh, increased um, sense of social support and increased uh, value of social support, um, spirituality, um, appreciation for life. Um, so these are things that um, I am seeing in some of my clients um, already. Um, and there's something, they are, um, there are things that we can start to do should we choose to go in that direction. But it's um, something that's very deliberate. Um, adjusting um, and growing from this experience is something that's going to take uh, deliberate work um, uh, on our part to do. So, but it is something that everyone has the potential to do. Um, it's just a matter of reflecting upon, okay, how do I want to move forward now? Yeah, and I like that you said that it takes deliberate work, and it is work. It's, it is. Uh, the way that you cultivate, you know, your thoughts and your mind and work through those difficult issues is like, you know, exercising. It's like working out, and I think a lot of people um, expect it to be a little bit more immediate, a little bit easier, and as I'm learning with meditation, it's work. <laughs> it does not come easy, and it's constant practice and deliberate um, practice in that sense to make it effective. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think one other thing I should mention is, you know, it, it's okay to not be ready to move forward and to grow. Also, yeah. it's, it's okay to still feel a sense of grief for the life prior to COVID-19. Oh. It's okay to still you know, it, it is okay to feel what we're feeling. Everyone has the right to feel what they're feeling. So I think it's just really important to kind of normalize um, that that sense of not being ready and, you know, and yeah. still being stuck. And, and when somebody is ready, when they have, um, you know, kind of reflected on their experiences and they can choose, they can choose and create a plan to move forward. Yeah, that's good. I like that sense of accepting where you are. Uh, and also just something that I've been trying to work on too is that self-compassion piece uh, with, you know, others, myself, and just accepting like where you're at, even on a day-to-day -day basis, you might, you know, have your highs and lows or within the day even. Yes, absolutely. People put so much pressure on themselves to not feel a certain way. They're like, oh, well, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling depressed. I, I shouldn't feel this way. I don't want to feel anxious. I don't want to feel depressed. And they put this pressure on themselves mm -hmm. to get better. And when it's not working as fast as they want it to or how they feel that they should be feeling, you know, they get, they get more anxious and then they get more depressed um, with that added pressure they're putting on themselves to get better. Yeah. So... Yeah, it, it, like you said, it's, it's a kind of that self-compassion um, piece there. It's just having compassion for yourself and um, accepting, you know, having that sense of acceptance for the feeling of, um, in the moment. Yeah, and something that I'm learning too is, you know, labeling it, saying this is anxiety. That way it sort of separates you from it. It doesn't say that, you know, I'm anxiety. It's just saying I have this feeling right now and that's okay and it'll pass. Everything changes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is something that's really important to, um, to parse part is that, you know, a person feeling anxiety, that doesn't, that's not their character. That does not mean that they are of, you know, a, um, a poor character or it's not some reflection on who they are. Right. Um, it's yeah, like you said, it is, um, it is anxiety. I am feeling anxiety. This is what this is at this moment. This is not me. Mm-hmm. This is anxiety. And yeah. I think that's, that's also really important. So switching gears a little bit, we want to talk a little bit about your multicultural work that you do that you shared with us in your, your bio can you talk about how it relates to your profession and then as an adjunct as well? Yes, absolutely. So multiculturalism is ingrained in pretty much every aspect of my professional life. Um, So I've engaged in uh, multicultural research. Um, I've done research on um, race-based trauma um, and individualism and collectivism. Um, I also used to be the president of a nonprofit organization, um, and it was called the Mediterranean Region Counselors Association. And this organization served counselors um, and mental health professionals who were living or working um, in the Mediterranean region of Europe. Um, so that's another uh, multicultural aspect. If somebody is, and these most of the professionals that this organization served were. Um, uh, United States um, counselors who were living and working in oh, wow. yeah so it's yeah so the multicultural um, competence if you're living and working in another country uh, that is formed from your own you're going to um, need to have that multicultural competence um, and it's just so important to build um, cultural competence as a as a counselor um, as an educator um, so much research um, and the majority of research in psychology, education, um, leadership, medicine has been conducted through a um, Caucasian Western culture lens. Uh, and that may not be appropriate um, or applicable to individuals of other cultural backgrounds. Um, we now realize um, the importance of this, uh, of culturally competent um, and multicultural research and practice, um, but we still have a great deal of catching up to do. Um, so for me, I'm just um, continuously expanding my own uh, multicultural knowledge through either research or continuing education, um, just anything that I can that, you know, to continue to grow and, um, and learn, um, you know, New, new ways of, um, of uh, being an experience in the world and um, just new um, ideas regarding culture, new knowledge regarding culture, just because um, I have so many multicultural clients and students and mm-hmm. they're living in, you know, the United States is growing, is becoming more diverse all the time. So it is really important to continuously and mindfully um, grow one's cultural competence um, in counseling and as an educator. You know, you, you, you made me um, reflect back on, um, on, on this time that I, that I went to Lebanon in order to um, provide some in-service training and stuff. And, and, I, and I brought some colleagues with me. And one of the things that we were talking about was special ed. And we were talking about uh, children with, autism and it was a it was a pretty packed house there was about two to three hundred 
Lebanese teachers. And so afterwards there was that Q and A and, and, and there was a teacher who stood up and said, um, we appreciate you talking about this. We were talking about once again, special ed They're They're like, but you have a problem with autism. We don't hear because we hug our children. And we were like, wow, <laughs> you know, we're, and, and we didn't, you know, we didn't want to get into the whole issue of what autism actually was, but, but that, that really brought us, brought, you know, brought us down that, yeah, culturally, um, you know, we, we really needed to watch how we said things and then how we, how we navigated it. Um, but you, but you bring up some, some, some really fascinating points because, even even in education, I don't think a lot of teachers really think about culture. They don't, you know they they just think, okay, this is what I was this is what I was taught um, during my undergrad years. This is what I was taught within teacher ed. Um, these are the standards. Everyone learn them um, without really thinking about kids and families. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's something else that's really interesting um, is that. Going off what you said about, you know, in Lebanon, oh, we don't have a problem with autism. The definition of um, certain conditions and the way that certain um, ways of being um, are conceptualized can be vastly different in other cultures. So that manual, like you were saying, get this thing, this is how it's done in teacher education. This is how it's done. This is what we do. That might not be how they do it in other countries. And then... It might not match. So if you have, um, if you're going to work in another country, or let's say you have a student, you're working, you know, in the United States, you have a student from another country come in. It's, you know, that manual that you have, well, their conceptual, the whole conceptualization of, um, you know, of, of these things, you know, this way of being, this way of learning, this way of behaving in the classroom, uh, all of these things could be vastly different. Yeah. That's so true. So as educators, we're concerned with students being able to be in school with their peers, but we're also concerned with the spread of COVID. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about a happy medium for that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a challenging issue to navigate um, because in the interest of public health and for uh, public safety, we do need to be socially distant. Uh, we need to follow guidelines. We really need to prevent the spread of the virus. On the other hand, it's also vital to our well-being to socially connect with others. Um, for children and adolescents, the pandemic is affecting every aspect of their development. Um, and so I think like finding a happy medium is really challenging. Um, I know that many schools are considering hybrid models for teaching in 2021, um, and that may that might bring some challenges. Um, I know that's the attempt at trying to find a happy medium. I know um, from my own personal experience during the fall of 2020, when I taught, um, both universities I worked at attempted the hybrid model of teaching. Um, for one, it worked pretty well. Um, the other one, there was a huge disaster. Um, and it, yeah, and the other one actually ended up having a huge um, COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, so it was, yeah, so finding that happy medium, there's so much to consider. What works well in one place may not work well in another. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way to find a happy medium? I mean, I hope so. I just don't know. I don't know what to do about it. And I know that what works well for one per one group, one um, area, one school may not work well for another. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that I've, I've been talking to a lot of colleagues from throughout the country about their, about their plans. And it's unfortunate. It's this, this whole pandemic has, has taken a political discourse where um, as, as what one, and then one administrator said, gosh, Fred, I'm damned if I do. And I'm damned if I don't. Um, meaning, you know, damned if I open up the doors to let people in, to, you know, just to let everyone in. And then I'm damned if I don't, um, you know, so there's, it's, it's tough. I wouldn't want to be a governor. I wouldn't want to be, you know, a mayor or a superintendent, you know, trying to work this out because there's, I mean, if we just look over social social media, there's, there's parents clamoring, you know, we have to put our kids in because my kid is in school and he's a, he's, he's on the football team and it's his last year and da da da. And there's other people going, no, (laughs) let's not do this just because your kid is. And I get it. You know, I, I, I totally get it because there's, it's, yeah, it's really not a, it's really not a situation I would want to be in charge of. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> so then, so then now, now that you're finished with your, with your dissertation, what is next for Dr. Stephanie Chalk? So I'm not the type of person that likes to explore new opportunities. Um, and just engage in a lot of different things at once. I wear a lot of different professional hats. Um, so, <clears throat> well, um, I'm going to continue to do the work I'm already doing. I really want to get um, involved with new missions that um, really highlight um, my passions. And um, uh, so I, I really I really enjoy research. Um, I also really enjoy um, organizational involvement. Um, so, so I am planning to do a follow-up study to my dissertation um, after the pandemic subsided a little bit, or at least, you know, at some sort of appropriate time, whenever that might be. Um, right. It's so hard to determine when is a good time for a follow-up study, but I am planning to do one. Um, I'm also going to try and share my current research findings through peer-reviewed publications, articles, um, and presentations. Um, I also want to become involved with nonprofit leadership like I've done in the past. <clears throat> so I'm really exploring how I can best um, use my skill set to serve missions that empower um, vulnerable and marginalized populations um, or enhance the counseling field um, or, uh, you know, enhance trauma-informed care. That's something else I'm really passionate about. So I'm just kind of, um, yeah, I'm just open to all all kinds of different ideas and exploring different options right now. It sounds like you have a lot of, you know, like good experience, but also aligned with good projects to, you know, contribute and give back to. So I'm sure you'll find your way and your passion projects for sure. Thanks. Can you share with us uh, any social media outlets or any way that our listeners can get in touch with you? Yeah. So the best way to get in touch with me is to uh, visit my professional portfolio. It's uh, stephaniechalk.com. 
um, and just click on the contact uh, tab on my webpage. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. That's um, another professional platform that I use. Perfect. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for your, for your time. One of the things that we like to end our conversations with, with our guests is for them to share what their call to action is. So can you share with our listeners and, and with us what your call to action is? Yeah, so um, accessibility. So accessibility is a major social justice issue um, that is gravely overlooked these days, I feel like. Um, so people who have physical, developmental, psychological differences um, or disabilities face barriers that are sometimes impossible to move through without uh, accommodation or accessibility. So um, in the United States, um, it's been uh, quite, a, quite a while, 30 years, I believe, since the Americans with Disabilities um, Act, the ADA. And we are still so far behind. So my call to action is just for um, everyone to be alert to accessibility and accommodation barriers um, in your local communities um, and, you know, and wherever else um, that you may notice them. Um, one of my current missions um, is to have um, a stairlift installed in um, James Madison University's Graduate Psychology Building um, because this building is old and has major accessibility issues. Um, and the university's overlooked it because it was built before ADA, it was um, an older building, so it's not really required by law that they fix it um, and make it accessible, like fully accessible inside of the building, but it's still, um, it's still a major issue. Um, and it's a very important. There have been students who've come and gone who had um, accessibility issues in that building and it still has not been addressed. So that's that's my personal mission. Um, and I actually have a um, I actually have a petition um, that's been up for a while. I'm still getting more signatures and sending it to the school every once in a while, being like, hey, this issue is still important. Let's, you know, focus on, can we, can we focus on it and give it some of the attention it deserves already? So, um, so yeah, so, um, that's my, my call to action for all of you is to just look for accessibility issues in your own communities, um, and, and try to do, um, do what you can to kind of, um, build awareness and to promote, um, uh, change, um, to improve accessibility. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your research today. We really appreciate hearing your perspective, and um, and it's such a timely topic, too, and it's pretty cool that you got to do your dissertation on the pandemic. But um, really appreciate you today and um, learned a lot from you, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I really enjoyed talking with you all. Mm -hmm.